This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 674. I put myself in a position of the, the tenant, right? The number one thing that I did, I kind of over-improved my properties. And again, investors, if you're new here, you do not, that's not always advice. It just depends on where you're at. But obviously I may spend three to four, 5,000 more on a project, but this person wants to stay forever or at least three to five years. I know it's a business, but I constantly relate to my tenants that, hey, I'm a single mother or I've been in your shoes. And I feel like letting them identify with me versus I'm just a big box landlord that really helps me with turnovers. What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast here today with my co-host, Rob Abasolo, bringing you a fire episode. In today's show, we bring back Ashley Hamilton, one of our most popular guests we've ever had on the podcast. Ashley is a Detroit, Michigan investor who is crushing it in her space and has evolved quite a bit since the last time we had her on. She has a fantastic story that I know you're going to love. Rob, what were some of your favorite parts of the show? Honestly, this is a crazy full circle moment for me because I remember the first episode that she did, I was in my garage. I was cleaning my garage. Uh, It was like 7 p.m. It was in the dark. People were like, why is this guy like cleaning his garage at, at night? And I was listening to this and I remember thinking her story was so insane like one of the most inspiring stories so my favorite part about this episode is that we had her back on and she's actually able to top the original episode which i think was episode 331 if i'm not mistaken yes it was 331 and ashley did not fail to deliver you're gonna love this story especially if you're someone who's had a hard time getting traction or you can't figure out which market to invest in or you don't know why it's so hard to get a deal ashley has a lot of good advice from all those perspectives today's show went a little bit long so i'm gonna make the intro short here and i'm just gonna remind you you don't have to listen to a whole podcast in one setting it's okay if you have a 45 minute commute to listen to a 55 minute podcast just listen to the last 10 minutes on the way home. Before bringing Ashley, today's quick tip is consider, because all of us don't like high rates, interest rates have been going up, just consider that the lower that the price point of the home is and the lower the loan balance, the less important the interest rate is. When you get into these lower priced homes, really high rates have much of a smaller impact on the mortgage than when you're at a high price point. Oh, I, I, I have a quick tip as well. Can I, can I throw it in? Yeah, let's hear. All right. I've got a, uh, or as I like to say, a quick, quick, quick tip. When you're thinking of an acronym and you want to brand yourself in the real estate industry, just make sure that you think through all the different possibilities of what that acronym can mean before you go out and mass market it. Uh, If you're wondering what I mean by this, just stick around until the very end of the episode. And I think it's going to make a lot more sense. Very nice, Rob. I like you bringing it out. So make sure you guys listen all the way to the end because we have a very, very fun and entertaining moment at the end of the show. I think, hey, by the way, I think that's the most I've ever laughed on Bigger Pockets BT Dubs. So just stay tuned for this. It was pretty good. Ashley, you did a great job. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. 
PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. All right, let's bring in Ashley. I remember when we did our first episode with you, you made such an impression on so many people. I think because like 98% of our audience was like, I see myself in her. I've been there, I've felt that, I've done that. So it, it, in the past, we would focus more on like, tell me the strategy, tell me what you did, right? We're gonna get to that, but we wanna start off with more, this is why it mattered, this is what my journey was like, this is what changed when I finally decided I'm gonna use this strategy. Right, yeah, so everybody says, oh, I wanna get in real estate for my kids, right? But I had to get in real estate for my kids. So at age 18, I was a single mother of two and I got marched to the welfare office, right? Because I needed government assistance, I needed food stamps, I needed childcare. When my daughter just turned 18 in December, I marched her in a bank. She has a business of 700 credit score. Um, You know what I'm saying? She has her college debt completely paid off. And all that was done by one property, right? So I had four pillars for my kids and it's for them to own an investment property, to have their home, their car free and clear, to have college with no debt and to have a good credit score. So that was just a big change, right? Me at 18 versus my kid at 18. So then that will go back to why, why it's so important. And a lot of times we don't see that because we're waiting five, 10 years from now, but just because I was blessed for my daughter to just turn 18, now I can see my why and why it was so important, but it was really to break the generational curses where I started in life and in real estate with a severe disadvantage, my daughter is now starting with a severe advantage. And even if she chooses to work at McDonald's, she's still there. So when I was 17 years old, I had my daughter. She was premature. She was two pounds, seven ounces, 27 weeks. And I had to leave her every single day at the hospital, right? I was a senior in high school. So I knew early on that I had to change my life. I didn't know it was going to be real estate, but that was because I didn't want to leave my daughter again every night or hand her over to daycare or anything like that. So I knew that for one, I had to change my life so that I can have freedom to spend time with my kids. And for two, I need 
needed whatever I chose to be where I can still be at home with them. And I didn't have to hand them over. So <laughs> fast forward, when we got our first property, they were three and five. Like my son held the flashlight and my daughter was with the screwdriver and we were changing the locks ourselves. So you know, I didn't have a babysitter, but I still got that. Didn't have to drop her off. So real estate was able to do that for me. Yeah, that's yeah, that's uh, it's a very inspiring story, Ashley. And uh, let me just say, as um, a former listener of the show, now I'm the co-host. So this is an interesting experience for me. You, your story is perhaps uh, I, the most remembered story um, that I've heard on the Bigger Pockets podcast because. you way back when I listened to it every day. I remember hearing your story and thinking, oh my God, she is killing it. Like what she has created is something that, um, that's just so inspiring. It really did push me in my journey. And I don't, I don't like, I don't, I truly mean that. Like I remember your story so clearly, but for, for those of us that, um, are just catching up, can you remind us, you, you got into your first property. What, how did that happen? Because I know that you, you said it was difficult. Then you, you, I think you were waiting tables. Um, I know that there's some, some adversity there. And so I'm kind of curious, like how hard was it to get into your first property knowing that something like this could, you know, it's a big risk, right? And, and when you're working so hard, any, any crack in that system could really, really crumble like your daily routine. So what was that like even jumping into your first property? Absolutely. Thank you for that. So to be honest, it wasn't a scary situation because where I came from, I had no you know, real estate investors, no business owners. So I never really had anybody to say, oh, the people can not pay their rent. The contractors can run off with your money. So I'm thinking this is a piece of cake. Um, I had heard a saying, be greedy when others are fearful. Right. And that has literally stuck to me for the, my whole investment journey. Um, and I, I left the seminar, cut on the radio, and everybody's like, don't buy in Detroit, right? Cut on my headphones, bigger pockets, Josh Dorkins, who I love, and I literally tackle to this day, don't buy in Detroit. So I took that as this is the sign. People are being fearful of Detroit, but I live here and I see it's nothing like I see on TV. So that was like, hey, this is confirmation, right? That Warren Buffett quote and turning on the news and everybody saying not to buy in Detroit. So I literally picked up the phone on the first listing I seen and they were like, the house is $6,300. Like that's it. So that's another reason why it wasn't so much as fearful because like if I, if everything went wrong, essentially I only lost six, seven grand. You know what I'm saying? Obviously it was detrimental to me because I was significantly under um, income or lower income, but I was spending my tax returns every year anyway and didn't know where they were going in three months. So if I lost everything, it would have just been the same as if I went out and went and took a fancy vacation or bought a car that only would last three to five months anyway. Okay. So you buy this house, it's uh, 60 in the, in the 6,000s and then you're like, okay, I'm good. I'm gonna call it in. I'm good with this one house. Uh, what actually happened? Like what happened after that? Yeah, absolutely. So when I got it, it was just like, take the problems as they come. So I need a new plumbing, furnace, hot water tank. So I said, hey, I need new plumbing. Let me find some plumbers. So that's what I did, just basically handle problems as they came. But this was not like your dream house, right? So when everybody's young or you watch HGTV, you're like, oh, my house is gonna have granite countertops and beautiful view. Like, no, it was not a house that I was proud for everybody to be at, but it was safe. There was no vacancies, no burnt down houses. And it was a park right close to the house. So so it was a perfect location. It just wasn't like glamorous. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do this every single year. 
um, for 70 years. When I turn 30 years old, I'll have 10 properties and I'll retire like free, right? So my whole goal was to stop working really, really early. You know, I didn't know about fire, none of that stuff, but the goal was to stop working. So I'm kind of like the lazy, like being lazy motivated me. But I mean, I, I call it lazy, but more so control and freedom, right? Control and freedom. Yeah, I don't think you can ever really say that you're, uh, you you went full time in, in real estate to stop working. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of work that goes into it, but maybe it just doesn't feel that way because obviously you're really good. Can you give us a quick snapshot uh, when you, you know, when you did the last episode, I believe that was episode 331. Where did your portfolio stand at that moment? And where are we at today? Can you just give us like a little snapshot just to refresh everyone at home? Yes, I would love to. So this is so funny. So when I was on the first uh, Bigger Pockets, I thought I was done. Honestly, I was probably I think I was like 33, something like that, 34. Um, and I had 10 properties free and clear. Um, and I was cash flowing, though. So what's most important that I was cash flowing 7000 a month and I owned my primary free and clear. So you don't have to be a multimillionaire to retire early, right? You just have to live below your means. So my expenses were like twenty-five dollars to $3,000, right? And I'm making 7000 a month, whether I wake up, brush my teeth, whatever. Like no matter what I did, I was going to make that monthly. So I thought I was done and that was 7000 a month, but those were free and clear. So I didn't have any debt on the properties, right? So David, I got his book and uh, just, just talking to them, I feel like, David like beamed down on me some stuff and like in my mind, but didn't say it, but I just felt it. And I just got like on a, a frenzy. I was like, you know what? I'm not done. I need to use this thing called leverage and bird what, what David teaches. So read the book, um, literally. So the interview came out in May, 2019 in August, 2019, I decided to start buying again. And when I looked up in August, 2020, so that was one year I had purchased 11 more doors. So talk about 10X with Grant Cardone. I collapsed time by 10 years, right? So what essentially took me 10 years to do, I was able to do it in one year by using leverage, right? So that was the one year. So I, from 10 doors to 21 doors in one year, just from being on the bigger pockets and David secretly beaming down that I need to use Burr in my mind, right? Um, so today I have 35 units, so 35 doors. So I've also, so in the last three years, I've bought about 22 properties and then I'm under contract, which is, uh, it's a quick closing because I already had knowledge of the deal. So I'll probably be closing about 20 days on a 31 unit apartment building that I'm buying all cash for 300,000 in the city of Detroit. Um, so that's where I'm at today. <laughs> okay. Wow. That is highly impressive. Uh, I, you have scaled up very, very quickly. I mean, you said that was in 2019. Yeah, absolutely. So what I feel like is that people thought that because I was on there saying I own all my properties free and clear, that that was my strategy and that I chose to do that. No, when you're poor and you're starting with a severe disadvantage, uh, my disadvantage was I didn't have time. I didn't have money. I didn't have credit or I didn't have knowledge. Right. The four things that you need. So I didn't have any of those things. So I had to buy all cash. I was blessed enough to be in a market like Detroit. Um, I had never had a thousand dollars in my bank account at one time in my life, except for when I got my tax returns. Right. So it all just worked. Somebody that's severely disadvantaged, um, never have any uh, money at one time, making 20,000 a year. Um, and, and at, as a waitress and just a fun fact, I make 20,000 a month just in cash flow off of my portfolio. So that's the big 
aha. So going from 20,000 a year to 20,000 a month in real estate was able to do that. But again, a lot of people assume that I chose to do free and clear and they're like, oh, you could have did it much, much faster, right? You could have owned triple what you own now if you just had used leverage. But everybody is not in that position, not physically either with credit, money and stuff like that, but the mindset, right? You cannot just go into this journey without having a strong mindset. So yeah, I could have went out, used leverage and bought 30 properties in 10 years, right? Or, or 100 properties in 10 years. But what I had would have had the foundation, that solid foundation to sustain, right? To make it through two recessions um, and COVID, right? I don't think so. Um, especially when, you know, when I first started, I wasn't even interested in section eight, but to have people not pay their rent in two years, like I could have literally lost my shirt and so many investors did. And I literally tripled my income during COVID to, I couldn't even qualify for anything, you know, but that's just my strategy. You have to be able to conform, but I want to do it longevity, right? So yes, I delayed gratification in the beginning, but it has allowed me to do so, so much more versus starting off very, very high at the top and then having to scale back. Totally. David, what's this like, man? I'm sure you hear a lot of people that reach out to you and they're like, dude, I love your book. But what's it like hearing someone like Ashley with the success she's had using the birth strategy and scaling up? How does that feel? How does that make you feel over there? You know, it made me think about Brandon often said when he first read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he said something like, this book put to words the feeling that I've been having the whole time, and that creates a connection, right? What Ashley was saying is that, I don't know if it was just the content itself was helpful. I mean, that was part of it. It sounds like it was more, David is thinking the same thing I'm thinking. He's feeling the same thing I'm feeling. We're looking at the world from the same perspective, and that is really what a like a connection tends to be. When you meet a person and they see life from the same perspective that you see it from. When you meet somebody who looks at it very differently, it can make you think, it could challenge you, but you don't usually feel close to them. And I was thinking, it's funny that Ashley says that because when she told her story in episode 331, I felt what she was going through. I resonated with her struggle. I was like, oh, those are very familiar emotions. Growing up, seeing everybody around you that thinks a certain way, living under this, this thought or this belief that never goes away, that you don't deserve more out of life and you're lucky to even have what you have. And you're never going to be those people that, you know, you see that have either a better body or a better car or a better life or something, right? Like, well, that's just for them. I never will belong in that world and always be in the window looking in like, where, where could I get it? And that desire being so strong. And then you find the doorway, like you stumble across the door when you're looking through the window and you're like, oh, I could get in there too. And you just hit it with this fury, like, I'm going to do everything I can. When Ashley told her story, I remember just thinking, oh, I know what that felt like. It, it created that connection to where we're on the same page. And the next thought I had was like, isn't it cool that real estate, something as like boring as buying houses can actually create such a connection between the people that are doing it? Because we're all on this journey to go from where we don't want to be to where we are. And so I live on the West Coast. Ashley's out in Detroit. Is that considered East Coast? Well, Midwest, but yeah. Midwest, but closer to the East, right? Mm -hmm. Like we come from very different backgrounds. We don't look the same, but we have like the same heart that beats inside of us and real estate brought us together. So it's cool to hear that my book did that, but it's also cool that we get to have Ashley on the podcast so that everyone listening who I know, I, we're not the only two that experience those emotions or, or go through that. They, they get to relate as well. Yeah. So Ashley, I know that you're a really big believer of having to go slow to go fast can you take us a little bit through that philosophy and, and how that guides your real estate journey now? 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's a little bit what we just talked about before about, you know, just doing the one property a year, right? Um, most of it is because what I could do, right? So a lot of investors overextend themselves. And um, obviously, I was listening to a podcast before and David talked about this a lot where, um, you know, you want to go out and buy 10 doors, right, all at once, or you want to go buy a lot, but then you're not really going to cash flow. So the deals that, that David's doing now, he's not expecting to get the cash flow or, or the benefits right now. He's expecting to get that in three to five years, right? So obviously when I was on the podcast, I had a ton of people reach out to me and a lot of people bought properties in Detroit or just anywhere. And they were expecting to use the bird method and like just keep, you know, adding fuel to this, which is great. But they also wanted to quit their job as well, right? So you cannot do that. That's the biggest thing I would say as far as going slow. So when I bought my first investment property, um, I didn't just say I'm going to quit my job tomorrow, right? I essentially had a plan that I was going to buy another house every year until I was 30. Um, and then that's when I would consider quitting. So at one point I was making more than my, my general manager, right? On cash flow, but I still went to work. So that's another big thing. People are so quick to just leave their job right away. So essentially, I feel like the South foundation and what really helped me was essentially for the business after each investment property I bought I reinvested the profits so I essentially took a job for seven years without taking a, a payment right can you imagine being on your job getting a paycheck for seven years straight and never spending it that's what like added rocket fuel to my second journey because I delayed the gratification I wasn't depending on the the 10 units free and clear for my income I still worked right and it wasn't because um you know, well, first of all, it was because I was young, right? And I just believe in hard work, but mostly it's because I, I wanted this to last longer, right? And then also another mistake I feel like people make is that when you're starting at a disadvantage, like you cannot just go and do everything. So as soon as you make your first hundred grand, you're going out to buy a Ferrari or whatever the case may be. No, because sometimes you have to reach back and you have to help your family or you have to delay the gratification again so that you can break those generational curses. So again, I know everybody wants to start fast and just, you know, but really think about what is it really meant, right? What does it really mean when you be real with yourself? So for an example, when I told you guys, when I first came on the show, I had 10 doors for and clear that was seven grand a month i know people that own 40 unit apartments that don't even make seven grand a month right so that's another another aspect to it just being clear what you want and delaying the gratification so you get what you want sorry for the long-windedness <laughs> no you know i actually just got done at a retreat teaching on this concept that I called portfolio architecture. I don't hear it talked about very often, but it's the idea of looking at your investing as opposed to an individual property. Like what is this house? What is this cash flow? What does this do? And then the next property is like its own thing. Instead, it's having several properties that all form like a form of a living organism. So you don't want, if you have a human body, you don't want 14 feet and then you don't have a hand. So like different asset classes build wealth in different ways and balancing them all out is kind of how you build a successful sports team, a successful business. Even in a family, you have people that perform different roles. In Detroit, I think when you started, Ashley, you were sort of limited in the type of asset that you could get your hands on. It was like, get it and then pay it off. And then at a certain point, you realize, okay, I don't want to have do this forever, this one method. Let's bring some diversity into this and then maybe develop some synergy. So can you tell us how did your portfolio develop and then what made you choose the assets that you were going to bring in 
Because like you said, some of the properties that I buy cash flow right away, but many of them, I already have enough cash flow. Those are set to be more valuable three to five years down the road. What's your perspective like on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a diehard. I identify myself as a DIY buy and hold investor. And I know it's frowned upon, right? I know it is. But just on my lifestyle, that's the way it, that's the way that it works for me. So my philosophy is cash flow is the only thing that helps you quit your job. And first of all, I'm an equal opportunist. I, if I see a flip that I can do, I would love to do it. But Detroit isn't that market, right? And then another thing is I could buy in the you know heavy appreciating market like the California and stuff like that. But because I'm still a parent and still have other activities, I want to be closer to my invest investments um, as well. I just feel like it's a greater way to be more successful. So number one, cash flow helps you quit your job, right? So if you're flipping properties and let's say you make a million dollars this year in flipping, right? January 1st, you start working again because you're using that million dollars to support your lifestyle, to pay your lenders, or maybe you live for two or three years, but eventually you will have to start working again. If you have 20,000 a month in cash flow and your expenses are 10,000, then you're essentially retired, right? And again, I wanted to quit my job because I wanted the time freedom to spend with my kids and I wanted control. So that's my strategy. Cash flow uh, helps you quit your job and then tenant turnovers kills cash flow, right? So those were the two things that I had to do cash get cash flow heavy so I can quit my job and eliminate turnovers because that's going to kill the cash flow so those are the type of properties I look at and that's still what I look at to this day what's changed now that I'm adding leverage and using other people's money is I'm being able to do bigger flip quality projects but I don't know if it's because I'm a woman if I'm a nurturer I have a hard time selling properties. I am not a flipper. And I know David will like, no, Ashley, if it's there, it's there, you know, because that's what smart people do. But I'm still very emotional right now. So I have developed a strategy called reverse flip. And it's just like David's Burr strategy. Honestly, it really is with like one or two things different. But I call it reverse flip because even though it's a strategy that's been around for years, when you put a name to it, it's catchy, right? Like Burr, obviously Burr been around for years, but until uh, David said it, it's like, wait, what is this thing? You know, it's like something new, like we all thought. So um, that's what I'm doing now that I'm able to use other people's money is I'm doing the reverse flip strategy, what I got my trademarks pending for, and I kind of coined, and I would love to talk to you about that. And then when we do the deep dive, I'm going to go into my reverse flip deal. Yeah, I do want to talk about that. One thing I wanted to hit on really quick before we do is you mentioned that you didn't want or you have to really stop tenant turnover. And I'm curious, is there anything that you do specifically with that? Because I think that's probably a pain point that like 99% of real estate investors deal with. Absolutely. So number one is, um, and I learned this from Brandon and David, obviously, but for number one is I treat, well, I put myself in a position of the, the tenant, right? And I remember growing up, we were on section eight and we were just getting treated badly and we just got the worst properties on the block. So I knew early on that no matter what I did, I wanted to have very nice, clean, safe HG quality properties. And I was trying to fit that in a very low market, right? So that was the number one thing that I did. I kind of over-improved my properties. And again, investors, if you're new here, you do not, that's not always advice. It just depends on where you're at. So don't go out over-improving your properties thing Ashley told you. But obviously I may spend three to four, 5,000 more on the project, but this person wants to stay forever or at least three to five years. And each turnover, even if it's bare minimum and it's two grand a month, when you're only cash flowing five grand a year, 
it can really set you back. So that was my strategy, which is making sure the property is as nice as possible, spending a little extra in the beginning to retain the tenants. Um, I do other things like give them gift cards during the, the winter, uh, Christmas months and just treating it. I know it's a business, but I constantly relate to my tenants that, hey, I'm a single mother or I've been in your shoes. And I feel like letting them identify with me versus I'm just the big box landlord that really helps me with turnovers. I really like this. I, I remember listening to this. And w when you said that, I was like, it was so weird because I don't ever hear anyone say this. Like, you know, hey, I, for Christmas every year, I give my tenants a gift card for this and this. Of course, I'm sure it's been done. But a lot of the times, especially on the long term rentals, we we're talking about the cash flow being so much smaller. Yeah, you know, a gift card could not set you back, but it's definitely going to, uh, you know, decrease things. So really cool to hear that. I mean, you're you're bringing like a human element to real estate, which I think is important. Do you still have any original tenants or any tenants from when you were first starting out that are still around today? I'm just curious. Absolutely. So I would say all, for that original 10, eight people are still there like to this day. So I know um, when I first started this, again, obviously no education, I thought this isn't going to work. I'm going to have to find something else because I paid $1,900 for a house that obviously that was a purchase price. I put about 17,000 in. So I was all in 19,000, but I was charging somebody 800 a month. And I was like, well, she'll just save up her money for two or three months and just buy the house next door. You know, this isn't going to work. People are going to catch on. And that was in 2013. She still lives in that house to this day. And I've done that multiple times. And again, it's with tenant retention. I don't, I guess the, it was the nicest house on the block is why they stayed. But yes, that's definitely what helps you with cash flow as well as um, everything else. <laughs> do you have any specific tips of things that you do in your house that make some nice, maybe things that don't cost a ton of money, but that go really far as far as the impact on the tenant? Absolutely. Oh my God, David, thank you for asking that. Yes, I literally, uh, cause I almost forgot. So the simplest thing that I've done and it has been so rewarding to me is I get this Delta faucet that has an LED light on it, right? And it's 69 bucks at Home Depot. Every time you cut the lights on, it glows in the dark. But this 60000 I mean, $60, faucet literally lights up any kid that walks in that bathroom's face, right? And if you get the kids, you get the parents, right? I mean, it's like, that's just what it is. So I don't want to sound like, like, you know, a creep, but I, I always love kids anyway. And I'm like, if these kids fall in love, they're going to nag their parents. Like, mom, we got to pick that place. We got to pick that place. Even if it's 50, $100 more a month than the place down the street, it has the light up faucets, right? So that is literally a good tip that I can give you guys. Um, any new investors, do anything like that while the kids, you get the parents. You know, Rob, you're in the short-term rental space and I've now recently joined it. And I got to say, my strategy is very similar to Ashley's. I'm trying to find something in the pictures that makes the kid go, oh, 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 I want to go to that one. Because like you said, Ashley, you, you get the kid, 80% chance you're getting mom and dad. So what are some of the things you're doing in your short-term rentals, Rob, specifically that will catch a kid's attention and want them to stay there? Totally. So every every house I have, we set up like a small petting zoo in the living room. And uh, when people see that in the photos, it like instant instantly books for a lot of people. But aside from that, uh, I, there's not really... So, okay, there was a house in Destin that, that we bought that we were so close to closing on. And then last second, the appraisal came in like $300,000 oh, You told this story. This is the one that got away. Rob is so, so hurt about that. It, it's, I still cry myself to sleep, but that's okay. Um, but one thing that we were going to do in that one is like, there was this uh, garage space that was being unused and we were basically budgeting about 
I, I want to say like $30,000 to build like a full, uh, fully kid proof kind of bounce house. Like, you know, everything is squishy in there and like memory foam, like pillows and like, you know, ball pits and everything like that. So that parents could see that it, cause that's to me, that's a really big frustration. Um, so we weren't able to close on that. However, one thing that I did, uh, in my Tennessee property, when we were moving out of that house and turning it into an Airbnb is we actually left our nursery and this was like a big, um, like everything our, our, we had like two cribs in there. We had like expensive kid pillow type thing. You know, there were like triangles and circles, like, you know, squishy stuff. Basically we left like hundreds of dollars worth of kids books and everything that we had used to basically raise our kids at the, you know, they were one year old, everything that we use in that one year period, we left there and it was going to be expensive for us to replace all that. But for me as a parent, I'm just so frustrated all the time when I go to a short-term rental and there's like a glass coffee table or like a super sharp wooden table where I'm like, oh, my kid's definitely going to like bust their head on that. And so now whenever I'm formulating Airbnbs and trying to like spruce them up, I try to add some kind of kid element to it that a parent can somewhat relax in, unless it's just not like a property meant for kids. But that's one thing for me, it's super important. So on top of just doing that, we're sacrificing a room. In Airbnb, it's all about beds and heads. Most of the time, an Airbnb host will leave a pack and play. But we decided to just sacrifice the room, put two cribs in there, leave all our kids' stuff. And honestly, people rave about it. Like a lot of people have reached out. We had childproofing locks on all the sinks underneath and everything. And reviews have been really nice. People are like, this is by far the most kid friendly place I've ever stayed. And I would pay a premium for that just because it's a, such a pain point for me. So now I'm always trying to tailor any new Airbnb that I set up to be more kid friendly. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So I I know I just talked to you guys about um, I'm just starting off my Airbnb journey. Thanks to this guy. I was already a fan before he's on the show. Um, amazing. Um, so what I did was I added the chalk wall. I, you know, obviously, I know it's kind of probably done a lot, but I feel like that's good. But it's all the way down so kids can write on it. And then uh, my daughter, she does like custom paintings in the basement. But a friend of mine who's in Airbnb convinced me. So I bought a Pac-Man machine for the basement, right? Because so that's like an arcade. And even if you don't like it, oh, well, it's in the basement. So if you don't have kids. And then lastly, the I would say teenagers. Um, I do QR codes. So you can create a QR code and then you can put like a sticker on there. So I do that for like the house book, I would say, which shows you how to work everything. But I also have it like for like fun videos and stuff like that. So that's just what I started. But I don't know uh, the return because I haven't listed the I haven't said it live yet. I think this is the kind of stuff, though, that people need to be focusing on and hearing in podcasts because the days of buy a property, make it an Airbnb, sit back and collect the money are gone. It's getting more saturated. It's getting more competitive. You've got to be the person that puts this creative thought into how you make your property stand out and how you make someone want to stay there. Uh, Moving on to another topic that I know that you're passionate about is paying taxes. I know that you loved paying taxes. So (laughs) tell me about why that is. Right. Absolutely. So that's funny. And I know, like I was going to say, it's controversy. Nobody likes to pay taxes. So I had an epiphany, right? I got my... start, I I truly account that to my income tax return, right? And I know obviously it's it's not like, oh, it's some free money. It's what I put in. But I, once I started to have to pay taxes, I wasn't upset. I was like, wait, I was getting six to $7,000 a year and a tax refund. And now I have to pay three to five. I'm going to do that graciously. I'm going to do it with a smile. I'm going to write this check every year. I don't care about all these tax saving strategies um, because I want to do this for the government because they helped me, right? Um, Also, when you're 
you're a buy and hold investor, uh, I don't do flips, so I don't have that capital gains and stuff like that. So I already was, my tax uh, liability was already very low. It wasn't until I added consulting and self-employment income that unfortunately I don't like paying taxes no more, right? <laughs> yeah, that's how it happens to everybody. Because that 7000 a year has turned into sixty and 80000 a year. So I was a person for the last, what, seven years that loved paying my taxes. I'm like, no. So the good thing was I just bought a Tesla. It was eighty seven, like 87000 and that was a complete write-off to offset that. So now that I've hit that mark, I'm definitely like I booked three conferences to go out and talk to the best CPAs. So now I'm like all about tax strategies, tax savings now. But for a good couple of years, I love paying taxes and everybody just thought I was so weird by saying that. And obviously I see now, but when your burden is five and seven thousand and you use it from a form of gratitude, not first of all, not, oh man, I have to pay taxes too. What I get to pay taxes now? Like that was just I was happy to do it because I never made enough money to have to pay taxes. So I just use that from a big point of gratification and gratitude. Like if the government got me started, my tax returns is what got me here. Let me give back to the government, pay taxes. I get to pay taxes versus I have to. I had a quick question here because you've sparked my interest. Tax, taxes to me are the thing that I nerd out 100% on. I just paid a, a tax bill that was four times my annual salary, last, that my salary from last year. So it hurt. Um, you said you bought a Tesla. What kind of Tesla was it? Model Y. And um, I got the uh, performance one because it was four months and the long range was like a year. And like, I can't wait. Like, <laughs> I need delay. I need instant gratification now. Sure. But to be honest, I had never done research on Tesla. Um, I literally the gas had hit five dollars and I was like, oh, I'm going to buy this car. And in six months, it'll be worth like 10,000 more Then I'll just hurry up and sell it or <laughs> I'll rent it out on like a a car site or something and I'll get the benefits, but um, I've already fell in love with it. It's only been a month since I had it. And, uh, but basically what it is, is uh, I bought it in a vehicle. I financed it through my company name, uh, my consulting company. So that's a hundred percent tax write-off. My consulting business is a self-employment business that's taxed twice, but uh, we need to hop on after because if you got kids, those are the best things. I know they're still a little bit young, but you can pay your kids to save money um, on taxes. There's so many other things you can do max out 401k so i don't want you to pay those anymore um so we'll definitely have to connect offline <laughs> I, I was asking about the the tesla because there's a um there's a section in the tax code called section 179 and it's it's goes to basic it basically means if you buy any machinery or any vehicles that weigh over six thousand pounds you can completely write that off on your business now obviously you can still write off your vehicle and other capacities but if you buy a vehicle for six thousand pounds or, or heavier you can completely write that entire purchase price so long as it's being used for business, you know, 100%. Obviously, if it's used for personal and business, you have to kind of split that. But there are a lot of really fun tax strategies like that that I didn't know. Um, and that's something that I think a lot of people are always like, taxes are so unsexy. And I'm like, no, no, no. Taxes are very sexy when you figure out how not to pay them because that's the real game. There's You got to master real estate first and then you got to master taxes. And if you can save money on taxes, that's extra money that's going to go into your pocket. Especially when you start to realize that saving money in taxes you pay directly to the government 
actually makes the government more money through the jobs that you created from the assets that you bought and the people you gave jobs to. So for every dollar you don't spend in taxes, if you put that in a new short-term rental, now you just employed a house cleaner, a handyman, a person who can do the pictures for your listing, a person that's going to build the chalkboard that you put in there, right? Like you actually amplify the money you pay to the government when you reinvest your money and you make it bigger. And so it's kind of a win-win. You're not actually screwing anybody over. You're you're making your own portfolio better. You're building jobs for other people and the government gets more money. Well, David, tell that to my TikTok comments. I'm going to tell that to the new, what is like 80,000 new IRS uh, workers that are supposed <laughs> to be hired. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. I'll make sure that like they listen to this episode and they can <laughs> hear that. Uh, Ashley, I know you are in a controversial situation for a long time when Josh Dorkin and Brandon Turner were hosting this podcast. They were dumping on Detroit and you are a staunch Detroit advocate. You actually bloomed right out of the Detroit concrete jungle and are doing great. You're wearing your Detroit sweater right now. Tell me why you are bullish on Detroit and what you like about it. Absolutely. So Detroit to me uh, knocks out all the what you can't do in real estate. Right. So obviously when um, when people say like, oh, you can buy cheap properties for 80,000. Well, typically that's the highest you're going to get for that property It's already at the top of the market. There's no appreciation. Rents are low. Turnovers are high. Cash flow is still low. Um, Detroit kind of knocked that all out of the park. Uh, what's unique about Detroit, though, and it's because that back in 2008, 2009, a lot of lenders left. So Detroit is a cash market, though. So I remember when I did my first podcast, people were like, hey, you're buying properties for 40000 50000 I'm going to go buy six of them. I'll put 10% down on each. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to buy it with 40000 cash. And I call that cash in quotation marks because it can be a, a credit card, right? Credit cards, are those are the $25,000, $40,000. So you can take two credit cards and purchase a property on it. So those are the good things. But um, because of the low price point to entry, as well as the cash flow and the low expenses, uh, those are all reasons why I'd invest in Detroit. Also, I don't know. I, I did look at our population is definitely increasing because we did have about a million people leave, um, you know, throughout the years when we were during bankruptcy. But now that Apple's here, Google's here, uh, they're building the first ever in the world electronic charging road in Detroit. It's going to be uh, released in 2023. Uh, so as you're driving on the road, you won't have to get out of your car. It'll actually charge it. So they're going to do a one mile. That's here in Detroit. So, and then on top of that, once COVID hit, I started to do research on Section 8 and I got really good with uh, networking with Section 8 uh, managers. And I realized that there's 30,000 voucher holders um, with Section 8 that don't have a place to go right now. So they're extending their vouchers, which normally takes them six months, uh, 60 days to find a property. It's taking them 90 days. So I'm like, wait a second, there's 30,000 people that have guaranteed rent and they don't have housing, like, let me buy an apartment building, like, you know, so those are all the reasons why I invest in Detroit. And most importantly, uh, because it's the underdog, right? There's not a lot of investors here because everybody hear the, the, the horror stories or the why shouldn't you invest in Detroit? So actually, that's why I love the show. And, you know, obviously, I didn't agree with it, but I feel like, yes, they're 
uh, taking another investor away from Detroit, more properties for me, right? So it kind of worked in my favor that so many people were being fearful of Detroit and that's why I wanted to be greedy in Detroit. But um, again, your expenses are pretty low. So on average, I say now, especially if you're out of state investor, uh, someone like myself could do it a little cheaper, but you can be all in. I'm talking about purchase, renovation, consulting fees with a project manager for 80,000 in Detroit. That property even if it's in like a bad neighborhood, you're going to get, if it's a three bedroom, a minimum of $1,200 a month in rent. But if it's good enough for Section 8, you're going to get $1,400 to $1,600 a month in rent, right? But hey, that's just the money, right? It's not about how much you make, it's how much you keep. And that's what I love Detroit, right? So even though I'm making 16, or let's call it $1,400 because that's the average for a three bedroom. Now let's talk about our expenses. So in other states, especially like Chicago, which I love, which has very low prices, their property taxes are outrageous. So Detroit, on average, and I own 35 doors right now, so my property taxes are $100 or less per month. My insurance is $70 per door or less. So if it's a duplex, it's $140. So single family, $100 a month in property taxes, $70 in property insurance, and $1,400 in project management. If it's a cash deal, that's about $240, um, one, two, $320. And then if you have, if you refinance and use the bird strategy on an $80,000 property, your mortgage payment probably be about another 300 bucks, right? So altogether, you're spending $600 a month. And because we're buying these properties and we're fixing them up, over fixing them in the beginning, our CapEx is lower. But of course we do, I always encourage people to save about 100, 150 for a single family per month. So Add that all up, you're at about $750 and you're getting $1,400 a month in rent. That's $650 a month in pure cash flow. But let's say you use the $80,000 or you have it and you cash out on a 401k and you don't have that mortgage, then that $300 goes back into your cash flow. So essentially, you're cash flowing $1,000 a month if you can buy a property for eighty grand cash and you know have a Section 8 tenant. Now, again, I don't want people to leave their money in properties. That is, well, it just depends on your goals, I would say. Because even though I have essentially two portfolio, one that's unleveraged and one that's heavily leveraged, um, I see the benefits and the disadvantages of both, right? And that's another thing I feel like with real estate investors or even people, they're always like, well, I'm only a flipper because uh, buy and hold is too slow or burrs this or I only want to buy cash because I don't want to over leverage. There can be a happy medium, right? But based on my lifestyle and my goals, which is to not work for anybody and have complete control over my time and freedom, I need cash flow, Right. Um, now that I've, you know, made all the, well, made all the mistakes and built that solid foundation. Now I can go and invest in syndications and for appreciation, right? Because now I'm in a better position, but it's not always smart to start off for appreciation if you're new and you have to build that foundation, because if you're still working a nine to five, you're limiting your time. So that's where I'll say it that. <laughs> so I know you mentioned that yeah, Detroit is a really great market, but the, uh, you know, you either, you going to maybe have a tougher time doing the conventional thing, or you might have to buy cash. For the people out there that may not have 
either of those options. Do you have any steps that they can take to acquire real estate out there or any tips for people out there uh, with the maybe creative financing? Yeah, absolutely. And now within the last three years, so there are banks and lenders that will do it, right? So you can buy an $80,000 house on a mortgage, but you're just going to run into people like me that's going to put an offer in and say, hey, I'll close all cash in five days and waive all contingencies, right? Uh, because it's because I'm, you know, I've um, prepped for this market. So I had to develop cash heavy strategy. So number one, I use heart money lenders. That is a strategy that works in Detroit. But most importantly, I like using credit cards, preferably business credit cards. So if you have like me, I have a property management business and a rental business. So as long as that's generating in, uh, income, you can walk into any bank and you, you have a 700 credit score and you can get uh, business credit cards, right? But so I might go into four banks on one business right and get about 60 70,000 in funding um, for that business and then I can use those cards to buy a property and then I'll go ahead and use the cash out refi to pay them back because it's a year typically um, interest free so that's what I call cash in quotation marks is leveraging business lines of credit business credit cards personal credit cards um, you can also use heart money and traditional lenders but I just um, I've heard about subject to right I've always um, toy with that, but I just never thought that I could convince anybody to do that, right? But I was just lucky to pick up a duplex subject to, and I met a couple people that's been doing them in Detroit. So that is also another great way to uh, purchase properties here in Detroit. And I feel like, I know obviously subject to has died down a lot, but with the market and where we're heading at, where people bought and paid 20000 over asking, right, with their appraisal guarantee in COVID, well, a lot of those jobs are being eliminated or now a lot of companies are realizing, hey, we can cut our expenses by keeping everybody working from home, but we're going to lower their wages because they're not commuting and traveling. So people aren't as qualified as they were two years ago. Um, so I feel like subject two is actually going to be a really great strategy to use in this upcoming market. Um, but that's just a couple of strategies, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, we're, I think we're going to get to the deal deep dive here in a second. But before we do, I also wanted to just ask, because we didn't go back to this. Can you just briefly take us through the idea or the concept of reverse flipping? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And then I'll break down my reverse flip. So essentially, it's just like what David did. But um, so you're going to purchase a property using hopefully the cash and quotation marks method. So the business credit, business credit card would be the best. Or you can use hard money lenders, though. But those are just typically the two. So you want to actually buy the property and it's going to be a rental property, but it's going to be flip quality, right? So you want to do it just like you're going to do a flip. So take out walls, full renovation, update kitchen, granite countertops, all that stuff. And then when you go, you rent it out, obviously for top of the market, because it's the best house in the block, instead of you ca uh, refinancing it at a regular bank, and I guess it didn't matter with the birth strategy, but I am using hard money lenders or secondary lenders, not traditionals for the 30 year mortgage. Now, now, obviously, if you're a successful real estate investor, you're like, wait, why would you use hard money on a long term? Because you're paying six to seven percent interest where you can go right to a bank and pay four, three to four percent. Well, again, this is not an issue for any investor. So don't use this as an excuse. But most people are only allowed 10 loans on their personal credit. Right. Until you get maxed out. There's this evil, evil uh, creature that nobody really talks about is debt to income. Right. Uh, the first time I feel like I got knocked out when I heard the word debt to income because I can't hide that, right? It's on your credit report. They can count it. They see your income on your taxes and they're like, oh, you don't qualify, right? So 
I didn't want limits, right? So I was like, wait, I can only have 10 loans. And obviously if I would have talked to smarter investors like David, if I had people like that, they will let me know that that's not an obstacle. But to me, it was an obstacle. So my philosophy is if I'm hard uh, refinancing with hard money lenders or private lenders, I the debt is not shown on my personal credit. I'm a personal guarantee, but the debt and everything is to the business, right? So now I'm not limited to 10 loans. Now I can go get a 4% interest rate on my primary because I don't have any debt, right? So yes, I am paying two to 3% more interest on the hard money side, but the available debt to income and, and benefits that I have on my personal credit by it being so less debt, um, has been tr- tr- um, phenomenal for me, which has allowed me to get more business credit cards or personal credit cards. Because again, you are personal guarantee in this stuff. It just doesn't show. So that was that's my strategy. And that's why I use reverse flip versus the burr. And again, it's not really different. I just made a name to it so it can be catchy. But I don't use traditional lenders for the 30 year. I only use secondary heart money lenders. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that, Ashley. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Want to dive deep into commercial real estate, entrepreneurship, leadership, and the economy? Tune into the Walker webcast hosted by the CEO of Walker & Dunlop, one of the largest commercial real estate finance and advisory services firms in the nation. As an unparalleled leader in commercial real estate, CEO Willie Walker frequently appears as an expert on major platforms like CNBC and the New York Times. He's even been on the Bigger Pockets podcast network too. On the Walker webcast, you'll hear from guests like A-Rod, renowned economist Dr. Peter Linneman, and experts from Walker and Dunlop's capital markets, research, and investment sales groups. So fire up the Walker webcast on your favorite podcast app or join live on Wednesdays to see Willie interact with his guests. Plus, you can always catch the replay on demand afterward. Stay ahead of the curve with insights for life from the Walker webcast. Learn more and subscribe to the Walker webcast at walkerdunlop.com slash pockets. And be sure to follow Walker and Dunlop on all your favorite social media channels too. That's walkerdunlop.com slash pockets. Are you about to sell a property? Wait like 60 seconds because this could save you thousands. Our friends at 1031 Pros have saved their clients more than half a billion dollars, with a B, in taxes with 1031 tax-deferred exchanges. With the 1031 exchange, you can say goodbye to the huge capital gains taxes when selling and roll your property's profit into another investment that could make you even more. Whether you're an individual investor, part of a larger group, or a title or real estate agent, 1031 Pros is ready to help. Trust me, I've done 1031 exchanges on multiple properties before, and it has saved me tens of thousands in taxes, if not more. 
With over 30 years of experience, 1031 Pros has handled over 20,000 audit-free exchanges, and they specialize in all types of exchanges, delayed, simultaneous, reverse, and improvement exchanges in all 50 states. And right now, Bigger Pockets listeners can get $250 off any exchange by visiting my1031pros.com/bp. That's m y 1031 slash bp to get $250 off today. Oh, and make sure to mention Bigger Pockets when you call. They take care of our people over there. Take a second and imagine this immediate cash flow, above average rent, built in equity, and a foolproof exit plan. No, it's not 2012 again. This is just what it's like to invest with Integra Development Group. They've simplified the real estate investing process so everyone can invest. With their new construction single family rent to own homes, you'll get aggressively priced brand new properties that have tenants in place now in one of the fastest growing states in America, Florida. Here's how IDG's rent-to-own strategy works. You get exclusive access to inventory with aggressive pricing thanks to IDG's builder-partner relationships. Then, invest and collect immediate cash flow with tenants already in place at or very close to closing. With the demand for new builds, your tenants pay above market rent so you rake in more cash flow. And you'll get built-in equity and appreciation with an already agreed-to purchase price at year three, helping the tenants become homeowners while you build wealth. That's investing simplified. So secure your next investment property today with Integra Development Group at IntegraDG.com. That's IntegraDG.com to start investing today. Rob, did you have something you're going to say there? Yeah, I was just going to ask on the on the hard money thing. Aren't those lenders typically um, like bridge lenders? Like they'll only do the hard money note for like a year or two. No, so I, I we didn't talk about this. So I have developed seven streams of income from real estate and just seven businesses. Um, and one of those is I'm a hard money lender slash broker. So on, at face value, or if you pick up the phone and call ten, yeah, they probably will tell you that. But all you have to do is find one. But I have about seven or eight that does 30-year loans. So if you find one, now let's say when COVID hit, some may suspend the program temporarily. But now I'm doing them. I did some during during COVID. Um, you just have to find a good lender, I would say, to do it. I can highlight a little example here of why this is not a terrible strategy. So tell me, Ashley, what would standard financing be, just a ballpark, and what would your hard money rate be? Uh, so far as the percentage-wise? or Yeah. Yeah, so standard would be like 3.5. Well, you know, obviously they've done two or three interest rate hits, so I don't know yet, but around 3.5. And what's your hard money rate? Uh, seven, 7%. And that's today? Yeah, that's today on the long term. Yeah, that's not much different than where. That's what I was term. saying. I will call you right after this <laughs> after this podcast. That's what I was saying. Back in 2019, my rate I had one that the rate was like eight percent, but again, it still made sense. But yeah, that's today. I got quoted seven percent yesterday on a second home loan. Yeah, that's crazy. That's, and that's not terrible, Rob. Like it, I'm in the nine and a half percent for the stuff that I'm usually trying to get. So here's the point I want to make. When you have a lower loan balance, the interest rate becomes exponentially less important as when you have a high loan balance, all right? So we'll do a little exercise here. On an $800,000 loan balance, if you have 3.5%, like Ashley said, your principal and interest would be just under $3,600 a month. If that jumps up to the 7% number, you go up to 5322 
most deals don't work if you go from 3,600 to over 5,300. It's going to fall apart. But let's drop your loan balance down to $80,000, like what Ashley was saying. You could be all in on that. So maybe you're going to be borrowing actually less than that. You're going to be borrowing, like, say, $60,000. The 3.5% payment on that is going to be $269 a month. And if you jump all the way up to 7%, that's going to bring you up to $399. So you're going to jump from, what was the first number I gave there, 269 to 399 right? Like $120, $130. That's not going to break most deals when they're bringing in between $1,200 and $1,700 a month. It almost, I don't want to say it doesn't matter because you always want to try to get a better rate, but it becomes very insignificant, right? Like that's, that's less than the difference of insurance or property taxes at a higher price point. So it may, someone may hear someone Someone may hear Ashley sit speaking and saying, well, why would you pay 7%? I would never do that. Well, it doesn't really matter on a $65,000 house nearly as much as it matters on a $1.4 million property. And I've noticed there's certain patterns that emerge in real estate like that. Like the 1% rule is very, very important at low price points. It becomes less important as the prices go up. The 1% rule was developed at a certain interest rate that we had, right? But if interest rates are lower than the, the, the number that we started with, say 7 to 10%, you can fudge off the 1% rule and be okay because interest rates are lower. So when we're giving you these examples, they're, they're you know an overall way of approaching it. Ashley's sort of looking at the details that other people are missing because you're in Detroit, Ashley, and you're, you're no, you know how that market works where someone from the outside looking in might make false assumptions and say that market won't work for me. Yes, and that's why you have to speak to experts or like you can't do what I do if you don't talk to me. Like even if it's a DM, like email me. Like last time I did the show, people found me because I was a realtor, found my personal cell phone. But I'm not saying call me, right? Obviously, but what I'm saying is if you're gonna mirror your investment strategy, like, oh my God, Ashley's using reverse flip. I'm accessible. Reach out to me first because there are caveats, like David said, that maybe we just didn't share, not because, you know, we just forgot to talk about it, right? So, yeah, so that's absolutely right. And that's why I love how David thinks, like, literally, he just, I don't know how to explain it. It's just so crazy. But there are caveats that you have to do. And that's with any investment strategy, right? Obviously, if you're investing in California, you're doing it for appreciation. There's different things. But yes, that is absolutely uh, correct. It, it fits this market. It does fit a lot of other markets. My my sweet spot is um, 250 to 350 max for that Um for the reverse flip, yeah. So any market you can do that and per purchase price, right? Two hundred and fifty thousand to three hundred and fifty thousand. Yes, absolutely. Or or all in. I'm sorry. Yeah, because the, the ARV because the cash out refi. So cash out refi based on the loan payment at three fifty. It's like the max before it starts not to make sense, right? Because we are so the reverse flip method. Why I call it reverse flip because it does the exact same thing as a flip, but when you do flip a property. Okay, for all my flippers out there, and I come off as a, a anti flipper, but again, I'm an equal opportunist. I have clients that are flippers. When you flip a property, how much money do you make on a property after you sell it? Zero dollars, right? You may make a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollar profit, but the moment you sell that house, you will never get paid on it again, right? When you have a rental property, you're going to get paid on that house for the rest of your life, for the rest of your kid's life, and so on. So with the reverse flip strategy, and when we go through my deep dive, you'll see it, I still get the benefits of a flip. So maybe I won't get 100000 in profit, I'll get 60000 in profit, just depending on the deal. So I may have left 40000 but I'm recouping that because I'm still getting two to 300 a month in cash flow. Not to mention I've gotten, 
80% of my cash or, you know, out of the deal. So that that's the strategy why it's reverse flip. So it's like, hey, all you flippers out there, you can still do that, but why not try to finance it long term, get 60,000 instead of 100, but still get that 300 a month because what? Cash flow helps you quit your job. So that's the strategy. <laughs> We're now going to move on to the next segment of the show, the deal deep dive. And in this segment of the show, we're going to dive deep into a particular deal that Ashley's done. And Ashley, I'm curious to see which deal you have in mind and which strategy we're going to be highlighting. So do you have a property picked out? Yeah. So initially I had wanted to do my subject to deal because it's such a good deal, but I didn't feel like I elaborated enough on it and it does, you know, have some contents in the background. So I would love to break down my reverse flip strategy on a deal that I did. That's and, perfect. Yeah. So that's the one. I, I was I secretly doing. hoping we would get to hear a reverse flip same, in same. action. Dave is currently scouting out the, the competitor to the Burr method right now. He's like, yeah, tell us more about this oh, reverse flip. Yes. And then we need to stand on stage at BPCon together with my reverse flip. Flipping Davidsburg, like take your pick. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Go rock 'em, sock 'em, robots. That's funny. I was actually thinking of how you would spell flip backwards because that's reverse flip. So it'd be like the pilf method. Oh, reverse flip. <laughs> <That's laughs> it's hard to spell a word backwards in your head without looking at it on screen. It took like more time than I would have thought Pilf. to try to do that. <laughs> I don't think that was going to work. I can. Oh my god! <laughs> this is this is why we leave that up to Brandon and Rob. I frequently will come up with this idea and I'll tell people, and they're like, "That's brilliant," and I'm like, "I know, but I don't know how to market it because I don't have Brandon here to come up with a name for it, so no one will ever hear about this." That's a big problem of mine. I'm not creative like you guys. All right, question number one, Ashley. What kind of property is it? Is okay, it and this is just a funny analogy. I'm so sorry to go back, but if you think about the PILF, P-I-L-F, and the MILF, like what it really means, property I like to, or we could check property I like to flip, right? So I'm sorry. That is awesome. I just Mobile could not, like I just, that I like instantly to came to my mind and I could not hold it in. Property like, I like to flip. <laughs> I like to flip. That's going to be our merch at BPCon. PILF. David is literally a genius. I mean, I know That's he knows good. it, but I know he's humble. But he, it is just how he makes people think. Like, yeah, I don't know. Or just me and Dave. I just, I get those waves. I think you got some genius as well, Ashley, that you came up with that on the spot really, <laughs> really quick. Like, like yeah. someone needs to give you a recording contract. You oh, need to be God. like Bigger Pockets first rapper. Like, that was very impressive that you came up with that on the pill. Speaking method, of rapper, right? uh, since I'm not going to disclose the address, and this, I was going to get to this at the end. Um, so when I first bought the property, uh, the family, the neighbors came and introduced me like, hi, if you need anything, my mom, my dad lives here. My brother lives here. My sister lives here. So it's a family of four all around it. Well, if you're familiar with rap music and the rapper Big Sean, Detroit native, his whole family, including his dad, is my neighbors, right? So I won't disclose the address or anything like that, but I've met them multiple times. They don't know I know, but I know because I'm a big fan of Big Sean. So I, and, and they steal my contractors. I'm like, hey, they don't steal, That's but like, I got new guns. You got to protect your con contractors more than you got to protect your girls sometimes. Like, people will grab those guys quick. For sure. Yeah. So I got new gutters. 
they got new gutters. They're like, hey, my your driveway guy's doing work. So I'm like, hey, can you have your son like shout me out? You know, but I just I'm, I'm playing it coy. But what's anyway. a song that people would recognize from Big Sean? Because see, I don't think he's had a hit in a little bit, but I know who you're talking. Yeah, about. absolutely. Yeah, but he's just known for like just Detroit, right? And and all the things that he does. So it's amazing. But yeah, I love Big Sean. All right. So what kind of property is it? Okay, it is a single family property in Detroit, Michigan. Rob. <laughs> That's all right. I'm Big Sean. I'm so hung up on yeah, Bill. All right. Rob, um, did you find him? <laughs> yeah. I did. I did. Yeah. Big Sean was the one that dated Ariana Grande for a while, right? Yes, and absolutely. He, he had, yes, the, he had the mean you. breakup song that everybody that was bitter uh-huh. about a breakup was singing for years. Yes. Yes. Which we won't say on the show. No. I don't flip with yes. you. We'll leave, that, we'll leave that up to Dumois. All right. Uh, that's a gossip account on Instagram. That's what the kids are doing. Doesn't matter. Uh, number two. How'd you find it, Ashley? How'd you find this property? So this was a wholesale deal, and I don't do many of those. And essentially, so I was teaching a group of investors that wanted to get started in Detroit, and uh, I came across my desk, and I didn't want to buy it. But I felt like, since this is a group, let me take them on live and tell them all the reasons why I'm not going to buy it. So I went and did the video and on the video, it's so amazing to look at it because I'm like, ah, never buy this. This is never going to work too much, too much work. So it was a wholesale deal that I was not going to buy. I just thought it would be a fun example to show a group of real estate investors uh, a deep dive. It's so funny how deals come across like that. I have one that's a really, really good burr in a super good city. And someone had just asked me, how did you find it? And I'm like, well, there's the answer I want to give you. Like I use this criteria and I searched the MLS and I found it this way. The reality is I was at a round table pizza, picking up some pizza to drop off for, for a group of friends. And they had like a little advertisement running on a TV and it caught my attention. And that and I literally just looked at the pictures and were like, I can triple the size of this thing just by converting the basement. So for you, it's the same thing. Like I was just looking at a property to show other people and something about it caught your eye. Absolutely. Yeah. So next question is how much was this deal? Right. So that was the reason I wasn't going to buy it. It was uh, he was asking 85,000 for it. Um, yeah. And I ended up getting it for $50,000. So now before Rob asked his question of how you were able to negotiate that price, I want to ask you, how long ago did you find this deal? I closed, um, September, 2021. So, oh, just about a year. Yep. A year ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how'd you negotiate this deal? Well, I offered him 60,000, right? Because I was teaching my, my group on how to be firm and not, you know, get uh, excited about the numbers, make it make sense. So I offered him 60,000 and he flat out denied me. And I just told him, okay, no problem, but uh, I'm still interested. You know, you can keep it as a backup. And um, his contract was expiring. So if you're in a, first of all, you, and I'm sorry to say this. So when you're doing deals out here, if you want to be longevity um, in this business, make sure you're doing deals where everybody wins, right? So I'm not saying this for the wholesaler, but the wholesaler got it under contract for I think 36,000 and he was trying to make 40 or 50,000 on the deal. And I'm like, you know, make sure everybody wins, but that's neither here nor there. So he had a big spread in it. Um, So either way I go, his contract was six days from expiring. And if his wholesale contract expired, now I can go back to the buyer and buy it directly. So he called me three days, five days before the contract expired and said, Hey, I'm willing to take your offer at 60,000. I said, Oh yeah, but the offer is 50,000 now because, and I can close quickly in four days, you know, cause I'm liquid, I'm cash. So that's how I was able to negotiate it. He did not, he rejected the offer. His contract dwindled down. He knew I was liquid and cash and can close quickly. And he took the, um, 
but he still made 15 grand. The reason I asked about the timeline that you bought it is because opportunities like what you're describing are becoming much more available in today's market of higher rates than what they would have been two years ago for the last eight years. So you have, it used to just be so many people wanted that house, someone was going to buy it. The sellers had 100% of the leverage. You were just hoping and praying that your offer would be accepted. But now that we're seeing buyers that are kind of backing out of the market, demand's decreasing, sellers have lost a lot of that leverage and you can go in and start with the deal that you're like 80,000, that doesn't work, it'd work at 60. You get them down to 65, you're really close. I got like three deals right now. I look at it like the fish took the bait and I'm reeling it in the boat, but I'm not all the way there. I'm just waiting and every week they come back and we're getting closer and closer to the number that I wanted. It, that's why I'm saying I'm having so much fun. I see you're smiling you're like, yeah, that's what makes this this so much fun when we get to buy real estate this way. You haven't been able to do that for a long time, but your strategies will work for everyone unless your market is red hot across the country. Absolutely. And to be honest, like I'm not saying go out and have a ton of cash, but being able to be a cash buyer in the smaller markets, mm. that's the leverage because where else, you know, could he have could we have closed in five days? You know what I'm saying? Let me give you guys a little quick tip here. Quick tip. Yeah. Quick tip. When you're trying to get a loan for a property, it's very difficult to get a loan for a low balance purchase like price. So most lenders don't want to go through the headache of having to originate a loan to lend out 50 grand, 60 grand, 70 grand. They will set a limit of a minimum of 100, minimum of 120. It used to be 50 before inflation changed everything. So you can find this sweet spot, Ashley, like where you're buying, where the purchase price if they were to borrow 80% of that or even 90% of it is less than the minimum amount that a lender will lend on. So financing becomes incredibly difficult to get for the house. So the seller doesn't have a big pool of buyers, even though people would go buy that property because they can't get a loan for it. So then they either have to take a cash buyer, which is going to get a significant discount, or the buyer has to be like you and create uh, creative financing options for themselves, like this line of credit, the business line of credit. So now you're getting the best of both worlds. You're getting the price you want because you, and you're getting financing at the same time where your competition either had to pay cash for the property or they just couldn't buy it. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And that's the sweet spot. Maybe I need to focus on that and just like tell her. That's what you've it. done is like you found the like the chink in the armor, right? Like it's weak right here. The, the Achilles heel. This was similar to how Rob and I got our Scottsdale property. It was on five acres and none of the lenders wanted to lend on that many acres. So because I own a mortgage company, the one brokerage, we were able to get a loan where other people couldn't. But that's really what good investors are looking for. They're not just complaining. Oh, it's really hard to get a house. Ashley's like, oh, no, no, I figured out. Right. Like you always see the, the movies where there's a fortress that no one can get into. That's the market. Like, Rob, you should make a meme of this. You got this big wall and it's like and then at the other at the top of it is like great deals. And then at the bottom are all the little people trying to get into the fortress. And that's buyers. And then Ashley's got like the little the little uh, what would it be like, like the, a ladder the little, or a stairwell? It's more like the little vent that they have where the water comes out and the and the good guys figure out like aha we can sneak in through this little thing. There's always a movie where that happens and that's what your Detroit method. There's is. always a movie. You <laughs> know, I remember the ten of those came out. Yes, exactly. All right, next question before I get too far down off this rabbit hole. How did you fund this deal? Okay, so I used a business credit card that I uh, a business line of credit. I'm sorry that I got probably two weeks before, and I funded the deal for 50,000 cash because again, I didn't have to, I could have used my hard money lender, but because I only had five days to close, I had to self-funded, right? So it did need uh, 55,000 in renovation. So what I did was, and a lot of people, I don't know if you can do this with hard money, this is why hard money is slept on. First of all, when I found out 
when I was looking at hard money for the short term, the, the one year, and I was getting rates like 11, 12, 15%, I was like, oh, that's, that's awful. I won't pay 15%, but that's per month. If you, so it's annualized for the year, I'm sorry. So 15% interest rate on a year is really like less than 2%, right? So if you only hold the property for four months, you're paying 8% interest and you're, you're making all this profit. So you cannot look at interest just like David said. So, but anyway, when you purchase a property cash and you have so much equity in it, you can get cash back at the table. So because I purchased it cash and the ARV came up, when I went to the hard money lender to finance the rehab, not only did I get all the funds for the rehab, I actually brought back a check for 17,000 from the closing table, right? But that was just part of my 50,000 back that I put in it. So that's how I funded the deal. Um, purchase it 50k cash on the line of credit and then I use the heart money lender to do the refinance I mean to do the rehab sorry awesome so we kind of know uh, bits and pieces here but what did you do with this property flip rental burr reverse flip I reverse flipped this property yes I did so um so one thing else that I d discovered um in one of my other properties I was really like focused on making the basement look really really nice and then an appraiser came in and said hey the basement is great but no matter what because it's below ground we do not count the square footage like we can give you a boost on the finished basement but we cannot count the square footage so this property had an attic so I met a guy that was talking about he's a builder and I decided for the first time ever in my career to do a dormer on the property, on the attic and finish the attic off. So because it's built above ground level, grade level, I'm sorry, it allowed me to add that square footage in the square footage. So this is where the big changes went. So first of all, for my first plan, 50,000 purchase price, 55,000 renovation, I would have been all in at 105. The heart money lender did an appraisal of the ARV in order to fund the rehab, and it came back in at 265. So that was the big, like, wow, one, 105 all in, ARV 265. So once I added the, finish the dormer and finish that attic off, I can count the 400 square feet now into my square footage. So properties in that area sell for about $175 a square foot. Um, I did 135 because I'm conservative. So $135,000 per square feet times 400 square foot added $54,000 to that 265 number. So now the ARV was 319,000. But the dormer and the addition finishing that off only cost an additional 15 grand because I was already doing new plumbing. I was already doing electrical. So it's just a matter of running it to the office, uh, the, the extra space. And it's like a loft with a bathroom. So it's not like finishing. So all in all, sorry, I spent all in 120000 um, I spent 70000 on rehab, 50000 on purchase. The ARV is 319000 And then I reverse flipped that thing. So this is how it would work. So the ARV is 319 My lender gives me 80%, but most investors won't. So they'll get 75%. So I did the numbers at 75%. So we all are fair, right? Um, so the cash out refi is $239,000 with a hard money lender at 7%, right? 4% more than I probably could have got on a traditional. But I only invested $120,000 in the property all in, right? So I'm going to take the $19,000 for lender fees, obviously, because they will charge me points. So I was able to put in my pocket on the cash out refi $100,000, which is a flip profit, right? When you factor in 
taxes and the work and the, the time you put into it, you're you're really make that 60,000 is quickly turn into 35,000 on the flip. Let's just be honest, right? So with the reverse flip, I put $100,000 back in my property, but what's more is that is a high class rental for $2,200 a month. They don't know that they're right next to a celebrity, so they may see them one day. And I'm still cash flowing 200 bucks a month, but I've already put 100,000 back in my pocket and on to the next one, right? So I use that property to get paid forever instead of stopping getting paid when I flipped it. If that makes I sense. love it. <laughs> yeah, you got all the profit of a flip without the tax ramifications and you kept rental property and you get to cash flow. Yeah. All right, next question here. What lessons did you learn from the deal? Well, I learned that the more negative I am, no, I'm just joking, how to pick a product like... I really learned to always go look at a deal, right? Even if you feel like it's not going to make sense, right? It, it just depends. If if it's checking off two out of five boxes, it, you know what I'm saying? Go ahead and do it because I feel like I believe in the law of attraction a lot. So I feel like as long as I'm surrounded by real estate, so as long as I'm going to look at deals, even if I don't necessarily get that one, it's going to attract the right deal for me. So again, I did not want to look at this property. I, I swear I was so unmotivated to look at this property and I, I stopped. I went ahead and did it. And that was the lesson I learned. Also, the price is the price, right? Always be in a position where you can be quickly liquidated so you can get that $30,000 off the asking price because you can close quickly. And obviously that takes knowledge and being an uh, expert in that area. But I would say those are the lessons. Awesome. And then lastly, I mean, it sounds like the answer is you on this one, but I'm still going to, I'm still going to ask it anyways. Who was the hero on your team for this deal? It was me. Unfortunately. Well, fortunately, so that's fortunate. That's all good. Yeah, I say a lot of things that, you know, and I just want to say it's not advice, right? It's just what works for me. So just with my personality, and I think I even talked to David about this after the show, like I'm the type of person that kind of do everything themselves, right? Not because I'm a perfectionist. I know you want to delegate. You can't do everything yourself, but... Because I am able to do these things myself, I'm getting better deals and I know the process. So now when I step back from the business and with this new uh, great migration or great resignation, right, they're so hard to find help now. So if my VA decides to quit or my property manager decides to quit, I could still step in if I had to, to save my business. Or if the recession gets really bad and I have to cut costs, I can do that. Because in real estate or in anything, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. Now, again, I know that I'm taking off years of my life because I'm doing this and not delegating, but I really can't do much anyway because I still have a kid in high school, right? So I can't travel all over the world 24-7 and be a you know citizen of the world. I still have to be here because I'm at every single basketball game, every single football game. I want to be active in my kid's life. So it's not such a you know, a rush to do things. So that's my philosophy. <laughs> Sorry. All right. That was fantastic. We're going to move on to the last segment of the show, the world famous famous four. Famous four. Ashley, in this section of the show, as you know, because you probably listen to every podcast we've done, we ask every listener the same four questions. Question number one, what is your favorite real estate book? Okay, so in the first part of my journey, I didn't get a chance to read a lot, obviously. Now I am reading um, real estate book. It would have to be The Burn Method by David Green. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> yes, that's like the second time in the history of the podcast anyone ever said my <laughs> book. So thank you for that. And I mean, the first time might have been the first episode we did with you. <laughs> hey, I say it every, I say it every episode. Uh, number two, Ashley, uh, favorite business book? 
Okay, so, and again, it's just because I'm just starting my library. Like, I really love the power of reading. Um, but I read a book called Am I Being Too Subtle by Sam Zell. And, oh my gosh, it's literally changed changed my life. Like, the crazy stories in there. So I really love that book. Uh, I've listened to it twice already and ready to listen to it again. Okay, awesome. Number three, when you're not building your real estate empire out in Detroit and uh, mastering the art of the reverse flip, what are some of your hobbies? Right. So right now, honestly, I'm in a transition in my life, which I'm really grateful for. And I'm trying to figure out what's next for Ashley. So right now, my biggest hobby is networking. I'm flying anywhere, you know, go to any networking events, uh, going to CPA conferences, real estate conferences, you know, everything just to uh, expand my knowledge and expand my network because I don't want to be a one woman show. Right. I had to be because I didn't have the knowledge. But now I want to meet people and partner with people and be a social butterfly. So that's number one. Number Number two, I just still have a passion uh, for kids um, and just trying to make their life a little bit better, um, just considering like what's really going on with life. And um, yeah, so just um, instilling in kids my four pillars on how to set your child up for success for with just one real estate property. I know we were supposed to talk about that. Maybe if we got a second, I'll talk about it. But that's my goal is deepening that message, just educating more people on how to set yourself up for success with one property and networking. All right. In your opinion, what sets apart successful investors from those who give up, fail, or never get started? I feel clarity. Clarity is what it is. So obviously, when you first start, you may not have clarity, but that's where it goes into mindset and really having that conversation with yourself to figure out what you really want to do, right? Because uh, I do you know, consulting and stuff like that. And I'll have people call me and they're like, I want to flip properties because I want to quit my job next year. I want to be just like you. And as we said in the show, flipping doesn't help you quit your job, right? So I feel like because a lot of people don't know what they don't know, or they'll hear podcasts and don't try to reach out to the person or try to really, like if you're going to mirror that person, obviously you need to talk to them and see all the caveats and stuff. So that's what I feel is, is making people not so successful, sorry about that, is that they don't have clarity or they'll say they want to do something, but the reasoning why they want to do it does not align to what they're able to do right now. Um, yeah. And putting on blinders for sure. That's what helped me be successful is sometimes you have to put on blinders and kind of blind out some things and just focus directly on that goal. Amazing. And lastly, Ashley, can you tell us where people can find out more about you? Absolutely. So my number one platform is Instagram and I'm at Detroit underscore investor. Uh, I literally, the 11 properties that I bought in one year, if you were following me, you saw the renovation, the before and after, the me standing out live while 10 people are trying to get in the property. Like you've seen it all. I showcase that daily on my stories. I'm actually doing seven renovations right now, like various levels. So that's the best place. I also do have a website. It's Ashley Hamilton Consult. So my name, AshleyHamiltonConsults.com. Lastly, definitely, I am on Bigger Pockets um, for sure. So you can definitely message me on there. Awesome. Dave, what about you? You can find me at David Green 24 all over social media or on YouTube at David Green Real Estate. Um, and also beware because there's tons of scammers. They're popping up every single day. It's a big pain in the wazoo trying to get that blue check mark to avoid this. I've tried about 25 times and Instagram keeps saying no. So don't know what we have to do to change there. But please, 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 please. I know that it's cool when it looks like someone followed you and they start messaging you. And these people are very good at saying things I would say. They are listening to this podcast right now and hearing what David said. And they might even bring up the PILF method just to sound like me. <laughs> I'm not asking you for money ever. 
If I do borrow money from somebody to invest into real estate, you will go through my assistant. We will have a form that you're filling out. You will definitely know that it's me. Don't send money to any link that someone sends you. Good friends of mine, like legit good friends, have actually sent tens of thousands of dollars to these scammers. They're horrible people. So please be careful about that. Yeah. So if you if you get if you get a message from David Green Pilf, don't don't respond. It's not him. He's David Green twenty four. Uh, you can find me over on Instagram at Rob Built, YouTube on Rob Built as well. All righty. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us and updating us on your journey. Every time we talk to you, you seem to be doing better than the time before. And I love seeing somebody like you win because you're doing it the right way. You're learning. You are very persistent and you share with other people. So I appreciate you being here with us. I'll let you guys get out of here. This is David Green for Rob. I don't flip with you. Abba Solo signing off. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.